0: Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in our podcast studio, the majestic podcast studio, um, with our meme walls and our chalkboard with episode ideas, and unfortunately some uh, University of Michigan Wolverine decorations that I've not gotten around to taking down yet. Um, but we are here in the studio, Let the Bird Fly, part of the 1517 Podcasting Network, I um, encourage you to go to 1517.org sometimes and check out all that they do. Um, it's much more than the podcast, the publishing house. I have had three books with the publishing house, the most recent uh, named after the podcast, Let the Bird Fly. Um, daily blogs, devotionals. Um, so you can go check that out as you have time. But just make sure whatever else you get listening to or reading that you come back here. As always, we appreciate if you're enjoying the show, if you subscribe, share. Um, you know, Let people know so we can continue to expand the discussion. If you have feedback, shoot us an email. Go to the website, letthebirdfly.com. Our information's there. Leave us a message on Facebook or um, on Twitter. We're on Instagram, too, but I don't really know how to work messages on that yet, so I have to figure that out. Um, but we do appreciate getting the feedback. We have a fair amount of content in the hopper. Um, today is, uh, I don't even know what today is. December 11th. December 11th. And uh, we had two wing wing-in-its drop uh, last night or early this morning. Um, we'll have some wing its coming, and we're hoping to have this episode as well as the second episode um, on children in the church with um, uh, Pastor Hebner, Dr. Hebner coming out soon too, so that as you're doing your Christmas traveling, uh, hopefully you have stuff to listen to. I know we uh, Peter and Ben keep doing this work thing. It seems like a terrible thing these jobs they have um, I don't even think they get Christmas break, do they, Mike? Uh,
1: I would assume that they at least get, like, half a Christmas day off. I would hope.
0: Yeah. yeah we'll have to ask them. Um, but we're getting back. Uh, life got a little busy, and so things weren't out as regularly as we would have liked. Um, we're getting back to getting stuff out more regularly, and so we hope we'll get you back into the groove of,
1: uh, of being part of the conversation with us. And, and we, we, should, we should mention that we don't ask for money. Right. Don't send us money. Wait, we, you can you send don't us ask, money. I've been asking for money all the time. Uh, but uh, fifteen seventeen does take donations, and so if you do uh, appreciate what they do or or what we do, I know they're as as all uh, nonprofits are doing. They're making their big drive at the end of the year. So if you have some cash you yeah, want to give it to a good their... place, don't send it to Wade; he'll waste it. Send it to fifteen seventeen. You
0: can send it to me though, if you want.
1: It will be wasted though. I've got my eyes on some stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: been on on the Amazon. Um, we're excited about the topic we have for today. I would have to say, Mike, we have one of our top three voices we've had on the podcast. Would you agree? Yeah, We're not going to say who's here yet. But no. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Dr. Brown has been one of them. It's not yeah. Dr. Brown. Yeah. Who's another one? We had a second. I'm trying to think of who. Who had
1: the great voice? Yeah. I don't know. Well, we'll just have to find out. But per, I would say uh, with Mark...
0: It's another person from the third floor here we'll at Wisconsin top, College.
1: We'll just do top two. The huh? most
0: happening floor on campus. A very exciting place to come visit. We have a new person on our floor, too. Yeah. We now have uh, Spanish up here.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So So, uh, and, and we say to him, uh, hola. <laughs> um, Bienvenidos. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: Uh, taco. Um,
0: don't say taco too <laughs> Come
1: up with something. This show doesn't speak for our well, churches. got yeah, say Here's, who the guest is. I thought you were going to wait. And no. They, okay.
0: Our guest is Dr. Aaron Palmer, who was on before to talk about witchcraft. Um, and he is an historian here on the third floor. The historians are down on the end of the third floor. Um, you have to walk past political science, philosophy, theology, and, and then you get to. to and now history. Spanish.
2: And Spanish.
0: And Spanish. And. Uh, very excited to have him here with us. He is discussing today his primary field, right? This is your main field that you're in. And we're going to be talking about the American Revolution and something from a, a Christian perspective. I think a question that comes up in Bible classes or um, in schools. Was it justified, right? And before anybody gets all upset on wherever any of us fall... And I'll admit, I don't know where I'm going to fall. I'm probably just whatever the contrarian position is. <laughs> um, it, we're hoping it'll be a fun discussion, but one that we can kind of root in the, the situation of that time. So we're excited to be talking American Revolution. And Dr. Palma, why don't you, uh, we'll do it now so that I don't forget after the free-for-all, if I get all worked up during the free-for-all. Um, just remind the listeners, tell them a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I um, have studied for my PhD at Georgetown and have written dissertation, articles, and a book about uh, mostly South Carolina and the American Revolution, and more than anything at this point, the causes of the revolution rather than the course or the war. I'm working on something now about the war itself, and... Um, civil military relations during the war But mostly my field is, is The politics of the British Empire In this period So it's even a little bit more broad than just say Colonial America So
0: transatlantic history
2: Yes, I was trained in the field of Atlantic history That was one of you know,
0: the specialties of what I did for, Not for me, but that's what a, a lot of the, the Main professors focused on
2: Yeah <coughs> I uh, What was his name? Benjamin, I think yep, Was a yep. guy at Central Michigan
0: Yeah, Thomas Benjamin, an interesting guy Yeah um, <laughs> The uh, you mentioned Georgetown. Just a quick question for you: um, What is a hoya?
2: <laughs> it's it's nothing.
1: Um, I l- I looked that up once and I can't remember what it what it was.
2: Well, it years ago. Um, right now, where the um, kind of the yard is at Georgetown was the football stadium, and there was a stone wall. And I don't know why, for whatever reason, one of the chants was "Hoya Saxa, which apparently means something like "What rocks." So it's a reference to the wall and the line, like the offensive defensive huh. line being alike the wall. So that became a that became like a... a really nerdy football chant in Latin, and now it's just become the the phrase for the the, the university.
0: And I'm trying to remember. They actually have a mascot though, right?
2: It's it's a bulldog. It has okay. nothing to do with the Hoya. It <laughs> they have a, they have a real bulldog called Jack the Bulldog. There's been many of them. And okay. The last one was vicious, so they had to get rid of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's for some reason they have a bulldog, and no one really knows why.
0: All right? Well, I've just always wondered that about the Hoyas, and I can never. Yeah. I've never found a good answer. Now, now we know. Mike, why don't you go ahead and give us our disclaimer
1: then? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us, especially Wade. We will be keeping up speaking or thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And we're back for our free-for-all since we have uh, a super clock isn't working like i'm sorry but you'll be I was trying to
0: be responsible and keep track of time but it's counting down not up so go ahead but you'll be fine. if it beeps at all i'm just apologizing to the listener that's you, why there's
1: it'll be fine there's S- beeping since we have a slash an historian in the in the house um we thought our free-for-all would be what age of history would you least or most like to live in and we're going to narrow it down—not too much, but we're going to narrow it down to pre-20th century, just so we don't get lost talking too much about technology and computers and stuff like that. So technology can play a part of your answer, but we're hoping that it is not the the main part uh, of the answer. So, uh, Wade, do, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first?
0: All right, I think I, uh, I think I got this thing figured out. So it's okay. gonna it's gonna count up from now. Okay. But I can't put the time on there that I forgot to start recording. So don't worry about it. It just reminds you of the fleeting nature of time. Mm-hmm. I think is the the, the deeper point. Um, most or least want to live in. We said not twentieth century, and I think on the whole technology should not factor in too much. Because I mean, I would love plumbing, and so I could say ancient Rome. Um, I mean, I think it. I would. I definitely want to live in a time that's just plague after plague so I, I mean I, I'm going to let technology factor some I I my gut would be to go with the 16th century just because that's my primary field and I uh, I think it'd be neat to you know say like oh I could meet the people involved but I also think it's naive to think like I would go back and be a person who would just get to be like hey Martin what's up you know I, I, I don't know that I think if, if we're saying right, right if you go back to this You're, like, in the conditions. You're not, like, Bill and Ted, you know, time traveling, excellent, whatever. So I think an exciting time, I would go around, like, 1848 in Europe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I think um, Industrial Revolution, um, really creating a lot of questions. Um, I think the kind of feel of social instability or upheaval, I would – it would be, you know – like, if I could go back and tweet it, would be the best. Because <laughs> I think there'd just be stuff coming in all the time. But I think I would pick um, 1840s, 1850s, and definitely Europe. And I'm going to say, uh, if I could preferably be on the continent, um, either France or Germany. Because I feel like England was handling stuff less excitingly. And Aaron, you could correct me on that. We're getting more in no, the field. No,
2: you're right. I mean, there's, England is kind of just doing its own thing. Yeah, at maybe this point.
0: Belgium. There's a lot of fun exiles in Belgium at this time.
2: Well the Germans keep invading it too. So. Yeah.
0: But I mean a lot of the like the real radicals end up in Belgium at some point, you know, so that could be like a, a fun a fun place too. But uh I would, yeah, I'm gonna say eighteen forties, eighteen fifties. because even like if I couldn't go back and like meet Karl Marx or you know um Proud Hahn or, or someone You'd be, the, the, like, the, the sheer amount of, like, literature that was being produced, like, newspaper stuff, I think it'd be fun to, to be up on. We usually let our guests go last. So you got one for us, Mike? And it can't be too, like, I'd go back and listen to Jesus. Like, you can't, <laughs> it can't be yeah, I'm a bible
1: thing. I'm trying to stay away from, from the f- theological perspective because I think we probably <laughs> all go 16th century or, uh, you know, the 4th century or the 1st century. A. D. Those are those. Then we pretty, can't say
0: Garden of Eden.
1: No. Um, Russia fascinates me, but I don't think I would ever want to live in Russia. So I'm going to exclude like 1917 or like the, the height of the czars or anything like that. Good chance you die going yeah. there then. Yeah. And um, that's what, yeah. I I always wanted to be around when Cyril and Methodius were doing their thing. I think that was interesting going into uh, going into Europe where Europe was you know, you, there's a lot of Christian influence and yet there's still pagans running around, you know, to be <laughs> like a, uh, like, uh, being you can't in,
0: guarantee you wouldn't be one of right, those. Right. And being
1: right. in like in, in, uh, in Scotland or Ireland when they're doing mission work, but those are all religious things. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with, um, I think the Roman Republic, I think that would be kind of the cool because there's a lot of, the future is still bright, right? And not quite corrupt. And so there's a lot of statesmanship and, and politics really going on there. <laughs> I mean, there's
0: not a day I don't hear Mike go off on Carthage. Yeah. Um,
1: He's always I, Carthago Dillon. Yeah. Like, Mike, and I used th- to work out a <laughs> <about that. laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm fine with Carthage. The, we're talking to college, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that would probably be, even though... I kind of rip on ancient Rome and say, you know, they stole too much from the Greeks and the Greeks were but Mm -hmm. the Greeks were kind of nasty themselves. And uh, I think maybe that early Roman period where you still had, uh, it's one of those places where it's not overly materialistic, technologically driven, kind of the height of the Roman Empire or the modern period. And yet it's not totally just Hey, let's not worry about indoor plumbing. Let's just, you know, make sure that we're doing poetry, like maybe some parts in the middle ages, or, you know, I don't want to just sit around with Plato and Socrates and just talk about stuff, you know? Yeah. So I think the, when those two, two kind of things clash together, um, that would be a good period. It, you know, You're i are okay with intestinal worms. Well, <laughs> like they've
0: done a, like a lot of studies and just because of right. the diet, there was a, you know, a lot and of, and the other thing
1: worms. is, you know, like I thought about like, Oh, ancient Egypt would be awesome too. It's so hot, yeah. you know. It's so hot. I don't. I just can't have to handle the heat and humidity, you know. And so I kind of want to be in the Mediterranean world. So then you just gotta you gotta pick Rome, I think.
0: Um, a free for all to write down that I thought of best. When would you want to go back in history for food? Like if you were a foodie, yeah. And you wanted to go back in history and try like what their food would have been then. All right, Doctor Palmer, what do you got? You? You've, you probably uh, thought through this.
2: Well, I think the worst time would have to be the uh, 14th century. I mean, who would want to? Yeah. If they, if you could avoid a time to live in the Black Death, religious wars, all kinds of horrible things happening. Yeah. You know, the average lifespan's 25.
0: Well, if you're a pessimist who largely like likes saying how bad things are,
2: you <laughs> yeah, you things. could make a living being a plague doctor yeah. or something. But <laughs> I don't, to me, I think. Just I don't know why, but I think somehow America in the Gilded Age would be a, a great time to be alive. Again, sort of an en- endless sense of optimism in the country. The Gilded
0: Age is when in American history, just for listeners that are... Uh,
2: Post-Civil War through about the 1890s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just the thing that comes to mind for some reason is if you go to Chicago, it's, it's horrific, but it's now Macy's. If you go to the old Marshall Fields, that was a store uh-huh. in the 1870s, 1880s, was like the Hudsons in Detroit. Yeah. yeah, one of those grand old temples to commerce, kind of not walking into a Walmart today. You know, our 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 standards are so low compared to yeah. what they were. Um, you look at architecture at the time. You think think of something like the Chicago World's Fair. Um, it was, I don't know, a more elegant time, maybe. Um, of course, it it wasn't always cracked up to be technology wise, and, and certainly
0: I always. At, when i think of chicago around that i'm thinking of the uh sinclair the jungle you know i'm like there's that as long as you're not it. like a lithuanian immigrant you know and or working, black yeah.
2: honestly i mean obviously this is not a great time if you're a right. minority in america but you know um and that's something to remember of course there were sinful beings there's Although no perfect time it's not a great
0: time if you're a plebeian and 1848 wasn't a great time for the working if you're an eight-year-old child working in a factory
2: yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's all kinds of bad things whatever every period, and I'm sure 100 yeah. years from now people will be looking back at our era and thinking, yeah. how could those people stand?
0: Well, as- and people might say 2019 was great, but if you want to go back there, you could be in Ohio.
1: I mean, you have to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or Delaware, I don't know. <laughs> so so Dr. Palmer actually answered the question by saying least and worst. So quickly, what's your least, and I'll do my least. The one I least want to go back yeah. to?
0: I mean, I think 14th century is a really good one. Um, I would not wanted to have been in the West, kind of like Justinian or after, when things are falling apart, and there's just a general sense of we're on the decline, um, barbarian invasions. Um, the East kind of still has the old glory of Rome, but we're largely becoming... <clears throat> You know, like where people come to do ruins tours. Um, so, to 2019, basically? Yeah. I, I mean, say what you will about 2019. I don't think anyone can argue conclusively like everyone knows things are crumbling. But I, I really feel like 6th, 7th century in the in the West, and, and, and I would say in Southern Europe, in the West especially, it just had to be, you know the best is past and there's not much sense of what will be next and I so I think that would I mean 2019 we still have stuff of like what might be that is scary but there's also some what might be that is kind of cool I mean things could kind of still go either way I just feel like the general it must have been a, just a disillusioned like no. like a like the theme song probably would have been like smells like teen spirit like Nirvana, <laughs> you know yeah, but I bet you they thought like this could this could pick up. I don't think they I mean when like it's your like family's got, being raped and murdered yeah, by you know, vandals and you the know.
2: Visigoths are coming yeah. over the hill.
1: You know? Well if you're a Visigoth <laughs> <laughs> But I'm say I said if I'm in
2: yeah, southern that's Europe. True,
1: that's true. Um, I'm gonna pick uh, worst eighteen forty eight. I would not be How would you not like I that? don't I, I understand <sighs> the excitement and stuff, yeah. but I don't working class is starting to think yeah, of itself as a thing. <laughs> Man, but I, I, all those I, revolutions I, were defeated. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's the
0: the first real beginnings. It's laying the... Uh,
1: I, I would say that that's like, you know, there's some discontent with modern uh, modernity already. And, you're just and there like, are some cool successes this before they not, get defeated. This I mean, they're not gonna, it's not barricading gonna Paris and they're, yeah, you know, don't, they set up a commune. I don't, or, I don't like conflict. You like conflict more than I do.
0: I would have had a great time to be a writer. I mean, people yeah. are publishing. There's actual debate going on. Right,
1: you would thrive in that. I'd be like, can, can we just... Just all get along and 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 they're just all going to the it? coffee shops
0: and the bars and having yeah, those discussions. This, this is
1: true. I I would just rather
0: and as someone who doesn't like the two party system, there's like fifty seven thousand little <laughs> mini political parties forming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we never form a political party. We go to benno's We've all three of us have been to Benno's together. We've never even once started a political party or a newspaper. Well, and I feel like that would have been a good time. Like you go out and then you come home and your wife's like, "How was it?" You're like, "We formed a political
1: party and started a newspaper." We can we can't even we can't even produce podcasts very well no you want a political party could you imagine if you could podcast in 1848 yeah. though? I think you'd like 1848 because you could just kind of say stuff and throw it against the wall and never it's awesome f- and yeah. never follow through it was like what what was uh I it has to be one of
0: in history one of the most productive ages for political theory and <clears throat> I mean the be- well, the birth of kind of economics thinking of that as a thing in a meaningful I mean it there's a lot that, yeah, doesn't succeed, but you look back and you go, like, they're thinking through a lot. I mean, I think you'd have to go to the 18th century, or, I mean, yeah, to the 18th century, you have something equivalent with the French Revolution and American Revolution. But the French Revolution, you had a good chance at dying, right? right. Yeah. 1848, you had some chance at dying, but not as much. Like, you could kind of, you know, sulk away, kind of be like the Homer Simpson meme where he goes back in the bushes. Like after the re- after the revolutions get put down, you're just kind of like, "Okay,
1: oh, <laughs> I was back really, away yeah. from this."
2: Like, you know,
1: I'd like to live in the Carolingian Renaissance or the Wild West too. would be kind of. I fun. would not like the Wild West. No, I I think you that know? would be
2: pretty awful. I
1: really like the West. I like the
0: people are always coming in and shooting up your town. You're isolated.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful out there, though.
2: It still is now. That's true. Yeah. And now we have toilets.
0: And I feel like Carolingian do I mean they did some stuff, but you're assuming you're like in, in Charlemagne's court.
1: No, I think afterwards, like a little bit Yeah, not right like I'd be love to be Alcune of York, but you know, that's not gonna happen. So a little bit later where you see the beginnings of okay education you know, you know things things kind of being organized i see i like organ See, that's the difference i would like the beginnings of then why organization you be byzantium you would have loved the, the bureaucracy well i don't like bureaucracy but i do like efficient organization or let's take chaos and try to at the the, the front end of organization where you're trying we got hope like to organize the it? The beginning and of the nation you, states and you are like 1848 like chaos tear down, baby yeah. tear it down that's in what chaos. I like so these this has been very therapeutic for us
2: I feel if like if you we've had to grown. pick
0: between Mike's and mine Aaron what would you pick would you pick 1848 or Roman Republic
2: boy I think I'd pick 1848 nice I win not not because I'm a revolutionary but mainly I think because the monarchies all ultimately triumph and I'm probably falling more on that side of the political <laughs> spectrum <laughs> Yeah. So See, it, we
0: would have been writing for different papers. That's we right. would have,
2: <laughs> and, and I would have been like,
1: "Just, just let it be. Just let the king do what he wants. Who cares?" Right. That's I. So I, you would have
0: been with Aaron because
1: your status quo. Yeah, but not because I had a good argument for it. Just because I'm oh like, God, just, I just don't want that conflict or the chaos. And that's where the fun is. I know. Speaking of which, we should get to the American Revolution because yeah. that will be that was fun too. I hear. Um, you know, I, pro- I I like to think. That I would be a, a revolutionist, but I have this feeling that I'm cowardly enough that I would have been a royalist.
0: You know what? My st- I'm gonna already tell you my stance before we get too far into it is I'm pro American Revolution and and that what it gave us. But yeah, I don't think I would wanted to have to pick fights, or pick sides, or actually fight. Yeah. I think I think what a hard time conscience-wise either way, but but
1: I like what it produced. Yeah. So why don't
0: we get to that? I, I don't, don't know. We-
1: yeah. All right, we'll come back and we'll we'll have a f- fuller fuller cathartic discussion about Wade and, and Mike's psyche. And we're going to discuss the American Revolution, which was Dr. Palmer's uh, uh, main point of study and his doctoral work. And uh, before we get into, like, maybe just a brief historical sketch of of what we're talking about, so we can maybe uh, discuss the, you know, was it justifiable, the revolution from a Christian point of view? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your interest, and what got you into um, this field?
2: Go ahead. All right, Mike, can't read my handwriting. <laughs> so, um, well, I, when I was an undergrad, I had, um, I think it was partly that I just had a really good teacher in this field, a man by the name of Andrew Shaughnessy, who um, is the vice president Monticello now. And I, I was just fascinated, I think, by the creation of the country, the origins of the country. So that's what I really wanted to, to study, and, and particularly the politics of it. I'm interested in politics just generally um so when i ultimately went to georgetown and was working on the phd um the question kind of became well where does this come from politically where does these these revol- this revolution begin? and i became more interested in the southern colonies because you have some pretty big contradictions down there very obviously um a place like south carolina is 50 percent slaves and in some places more like 75 percent slaves so how does that work with these ideas about liberty and equality and things like that? Um, you know so that's sort of where my own background came from. In terms of just the revolution itself, you know, I think it's you know it really begins with the Seven Years' War. So, you know, this, what was at the time the biggest war in European history, um, you could easily call it World War One.
0: And that one actually did last, sometimes they name them this many years and it wasn't that many years, but this was actually seven years?
2: Kind of. Um, it was seven years in Europe. It starts actually in 1754 in the Americas, 56 in Europe, lasts till 1763. Okay. Um, long story short, the British win, they win big, but it bankrupts the country. Um, they doubled the national debt, doubled the tax burden in the course of roughly seven years. So you have the british with this very large empire now asking themselves okay how do we defend it how do we pay for this how do we administer this empire in a way that's going to prevent future wars particularly with the indians and um, ultimately a man called george grenville i guess you could call him the prime minister came up with the notion that well simply put we're going to have to ask americans to contribute to paying for these things never to pay off the british debt never to pay for imperial defense but contribute to it and his idea was this thing called the stamp act Um, would have put literally a stamp on on paper you would purchase the paper to print all kinds of documents like uh, anything from a legal record to a newspaper to a playing card so the tax was built in it's sort of like if you buy a pack of cigarettes or something like that today there's a stamp on the bottom that is the tax already paid The problem is in america these colonies have been incredibly independent since their founding every one of them has grown up with its own elected legislature it has claimed the right to tax it's claimed the right to make laws and until now parliament has never the british parliament never ever laid a tax on america so now it does question is what's going to happen well americans go nuts um the amount of the tax was tiny That was back in the day when Americans got mad about taxes, huh? And I think that's one of the more interesting things about this is how little it took to get them to set people off in the 1760s. You're talking about a tax that would have been, I think the average tax burden for Americans would have been around one and a half percent of their income per year, even with the Stamp (laughs) Act. It would have been a minuscule amount.
0: No, stupid question. They would have local taxes in addition to that that they're paying, or
2: sure, you would pay property taxes, things like that. But those weren't so much objected to because they were put in place by the colonial government, and by the, the government are that was elected. Here. Yeah, it was. Okay. It was all done within the colony. You know, there's customs duties and things. But people recognized somebody has to regulate trade, so no one really objected too much to that. But this was different. This was an internal tax, and going back at least to the. English Civil War, there's this idea that you cannot be taxed without your consent, that you, you cannot have your property separated from you unless you consent to it through your legislature, through your assembly, through your parliament. So you have this just amazing outbreak of protest starting in the 1760s, especially um, a boycott against British trade that ultimately forces the British to back down. They repeal the Stamp Act. But they just keep trying this over and over. They try it again with what's called the Townsend duties in the 17, later 1760s. You have the Tea Act in 1773, and ultimately you get to a point where through this process of, of questioning Parliament's authority, you get to a point where ultimately Americans decide, or, or many Americans decide, we are no longer really British politically. We we never have been. We're not being treated equally. Our rights aren't being respected, and the only way to preserve them is outside of the British Empire. That's where you get to in 1776, and of course, it leads to an eight-year-long war.
0: How uh, you mentioned that many didn't see themselves as British at this time. Maybe if if you're able to, if you could expand a little bit, how how did the the average um, landed and, I, I mean, obviously we're going to have to say here, landed white American of European descent. Um, how how did they see themselves vis-a-vis Britain if they didn't necessarily see themselves as British in the same way that someone in England or in the United Kingdom would have been?
2: Well, that becomes one of the questions. Um, I think, say you take, took someone like George Washington. George Washington's goal in life prior to really the 1760s, was to be an officer in the British army. These people saw themselves as British. They, they, they were proud to be part of the British Empire. That changes in the 60s, 70s, and beyond as it becomes clearer that politically at least we're not the same thing as those people. We're not being treated the same. Our rights aren't respected. Um, the king ultimately declares us out of his protection at, at one point. So you have this kind of crisis of identity. Um, And and this would be
0: mostly the elites that are seeing themselves. You mentioned George Washington and others. Or this would be, say, um, the Scotch-Irish immigrant who comes over. um, Are they seeing themselves as fleeing Britain, or they still would, you think, feel that connection as well?
2: Well, I think um, most Englishmen... have to at least go through this question i mean we don't really know the numbers you know john adams supposedly said that once um about a third were patriot a third were loyalist and a third were neutral those scots irish you mentioned they tended to be heavily loyalist um because you know in many cases they had come to america to get away from the british and the British-Americans had often not treated them much better. They settled out in the backcountry and often lacked a lot of the rights that people in the uh, coastal regions had. So the, this is one myth of the revolution, that we sort of all held hands and marched triumphantly toward this golden land of liberty. It was a mess. It was bloody. It's an eight-year-long war. And in many places, it's much a civil war as it is anything else. And it certainly involved people on the patriot side doing brutal things and often disrespecting the rights of others every bit as much as the the british did so we like to romanticize our history and people think the civil war is the most mythologized or uh, part of our history i I think it actually might be the revolution in many ways that are the uh miracle on ice probably (laughs) well there's that too
0: (laughs) would um so you mentioned the coast versus being more inland um And pardon if any of these questions are stupid, but I I think they're just interesting to consider. Uh, Closer to the coast, um, you probably, is it fair to say, tend to be more sophisticated or cosmopolitan, more rooted in the English-influenced past, um, more economically connected transatlantically. Yeah,
1: yeah. and there's a difference between the coastal... You know tidewater regions the south up into you know new amsterdam right
2: oh sure yeah, yeah but you know like south carolina is a good example you have charleston which is the fourth biggest city in america at that point um and there's other cities or, or smaller towns along the coast you get into the backcountry areas and there's not a single real city there isn't up until 1772 even a courthouse there's no police There aren't established Church of England parishes. It's a wilderness. People, you know, you mentioned the Wild West earlier. The Wild West in the 1760s would have been like near the Appalachian Mountains, and maybe even not quite that far in some places. So it's a much less settled area, and that was one of the grievances these people had. It's like, you know, you people on the coast, you're taxing us. You're taxing our land, but you're not providing us with any government services, any government protection. You're not even providing us with courts and you actually had in the 70s in North Carolina a mini little civil war going on called the regulator movement. So it, it, this whole narrative is messier again uh, than people like to think.
0: And then if we can somewhat generalize again um if we're talking the south so at this time we're we're basically um would be talking Maryland down to Georgia is that fair to say? Yeah, um or would you maybe even Virginia or North Carolina down what what would have if we're going to think of a, a southern culture around 1776, we're talking what states, especially?
2: Um, you're looking really at Maryland South. Um, although, just to be clear, slavery was not exclusively southern. 20% of New York is slaves okay. at this point. Um, but really, you know, you get to Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina is not much, it's very undeveloped. South Carolina, Georgia, um, and you could. Add to that even the Caribbean colonies like Barbados, Jamaica, okay. and so forth.
0: And, and the, the South will tend to be less loyalist, more pro-revolutionary than the North, or vice versa. <laughs>
2: well, That was what the, one of the things the British thought, and they were kind of badly mistaken in that idea. But, I mean, Virginia was one of the leading states in the Revolution. Um, South Carolina was more reluctant, I think, because you have people here who are far wealthier. Um, with the rice trade people who have many more connections to britain that were harder to break but yet ultimately this it it does go over to the revolutionary side though there is a substantial loyalist component there georgia was heavily loyalist um north carolina again is harder to read because it's it's much less developed so there's some truth to what the british believed when they invaded the south um you know in the later part of the war but they—they they, one of the problems they have is they consistently overestimate how much loyalist support they're going to get, and their policies tended to alienate people who were neutral population. especially. They didn't allow for a lot of neutral space.
0: Okay. So if we're, if we're thinking of um, things kind of will begin to pop off, and you've mentioned Stamp Act, T-Act. Um, what is I, – I have to imagine um, – There's a a fair amount of people who probably revolution wasn't even on the horizon for them. They probably wouldn't have seen this happening. Do you, is this a moment in history where, am I wrong in that? Do you think most people think, okay, there's going to be some protesting against England and we'll work this out? Or do you think there's throughout the colonies a general sense of there's a very realistic chance of a revolution in the near future?
2: Well, and I, when does
0: that start to kick in if it's there?
2: No one saw it coming in 1763 when this starts going. I think during the Stamp Act crisis, no one is talking about independence. That doesn't seriously become talked about until the 70s. But I think most Americans who support the revolution go into it, they kind of back into it, um, do so reluctantly, almost in some cases with a degree of sadness. There's a, a core of them. I mean, people like Sam Adams, Patrick Henry, who are just, they're ready to go from day one. But you look at someone like Ben Franklin, who spends a decade-plus in England um, as a colonial agent. He does not really get to his revolutionary moment, if you want to call it that, until Lexington and Concord in 75, where finally he realizes there's no more reconciliation, we, we have to now separate. Uh, and you look at his writings, again, there's a kind of sadness about it almost. Um, I think that's true for a lot of them. I mean, these were the leaders of the revolution are pretty much universally elites. They're um, wealthy. They have a lot to lose. Um, They have many connections to Britain. And there's no reason that these people would be radicals. They're conservatives. There's a reticence
0: about what they're doing then.
2: Yeah. And uh, Henry Lawrence of South Carolina is an example. I call him a conservative revolutionary, which sounds bizarre, but... I mean, over and over, the man's concern is we must maintain the rule of law. Um, you know, we need to even protest within the bounds of the law. And it, it gets to a point where there's no longer possible.
0: And at what point do you think there's a sense of what revolution means, right? I, I, revolutions can take a, a variety of routes. Um, at what point does it become clear this means military um combat it
2: in 1773 of the boston tea party in december so this is not a minor thing a million dollars worth of property was destroyed by a group of radicals in boston and the british simply say enough is enough and they pass what are called the Coercive Acts, which are meant to punish Boston. It's probably not a great way to label an act. No. <laughs> well, in America, they were called the Intolerable Acts. I mean, it did things like um, it shut the port of Boston down until the tea was paid for, which crippled the economy. It took away elective government from Massachusetts for the most part. And, of course, the thinking on the British side was, well, this will scare the other colonies into not doing this. It did the exact opposite. It, it terrified all of them into thinking we were right all along. The British are going to destroy our liberty, and now we have to get ready at least to defend ourselves. And there's this sort of mutual paranoia that goes on on both sides for about a year that, A, um, you know, the British are going to attack us physically, and, and on the other hand, the Americans are going to physically rebel. And you get to the point of outright conflict in April of seventy-five at Lexington and Concord, which started finally and the British set out to arrest the leaders of the Massachusetts um, rebellious government.
0: And then, I think to build off that, then a word that keeps coming up is liberty. And you've mentioned someone like Patrick Henry who famously writes on these things. Um, <laughs> what um, and 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 so these are. I think if someone were to ask most Americans today, would a revolution be wrong, we would conditionally say quite possibly not because we have a social contract, we have founding documents, we have checks and balances, we almost have built into us. um, The government can go wrong, can be wrong, and and we are we the people? Maybe if you could unpack what the sense of that would have been, what are the traditions of notions of liberty, of social contract, if there is any sense of that, what um what would have fed into, A, a liberty narrative, right, that this is something we ought to have because that's not something that's built in all human history, and, B, um, the justifiability of taking a stand for that liberty, what traditions, what documents, what um, cultural standards or notions would have been in place that, because I think if we're going to, Talk about, well, was this justifiable or not? We need to understand um, what there was that would have provided justification. It's maybe a poorly asked question or a big question, but what feeds into these terms being so meaningful for early Americans um, and into notions of, um, you know, holding government accountable?
2: Well, the Americans inherit the same political culture that the British have at this point. You know, at this point, the British have developed a constitutional monarchy. Um, there is a a constitution in England, even though it's not written, and Englishmen believe that they have certain rights.
0: And th- and that's one of the fascinating differences. Maybe you can just briefly elucidate. As we think of constitution, we think written down, and you watch the news about stuff happening in Britain, and you go, <coughs> "Well, so what article of their constitution?" Yeah. And then you go, you hear people, "Well, it's the tradition, or it's understood." What do you mean by they have a constitution, but it's not written down?
2: It's a, it's a collection of documents and legal traditions. So you could go back to Magna Carta, which is the first time, arguably, there's a legal limit placed on the monarchy. It goes to things like um, the traditions coming out of the English Civil War, the Petition of Right of 1628, the Bill of Rights that um, William and Mary signed after the Glorious Revolution, the bottom line is it's a, a, a collection of legal and, uh, traditions and precedents that place limits on government and guarantee certain rights. For example, the right to trial by jury is held dear to Englishmen. The right to be taxed only by representatives is held dear. Of course, only like half a million people in England can vote. That's a whole other issue. But, you know, the idea that there's going to be representative government. That governs with a king and that the king is not above the law. These are ideas that have developed over a couple of hundred years in Britain. And in America, when these colonies are founded, you know, they're founded starting in 1607 with Virginia. So it's right during this period where parliament is rising in power, the idea of representative government and rule of law are rising, and the colonies are all founded in that tradition. Uh, the first American legislature is in 1619 in Virginia. It was a, originally a recruiting tool. You know, no one wants to live under a military dictatorship, right. so if we give them self-government, they'll come. But every colony, every one of them, is founded with these traditions of representative government, and that government cannot do to you whatever it wants on a whim. So the the kind of ironic thing is these things are happening simultaneously. England's Parliament is developing. You're developing a constitutional monarchy. America is developing these same political traditions. Their legislatures are becoming very strong and independent. The trouble really was that these things were growing up kind of on separate sides of the Atlantic at the same time. The big question is the the power of parliament had never really been put to the test against the power of American legislatures. And when it finally happens, you have Americans saying, hey, wait a minute. We have the same rights as you people do. We have the rights of Englishmen. So from an American point of view, they're not asking for anything new. They're simply wanting to preserve what they believe they possess by virtue of being a British subject and by virtue of being a human with natural rights and liberties.
0: And connected to this then, um, what do you think the— how did the—and we're talking primarily here about American elites— how did How do you think they saw themselves visa v the English Parliament, for instance, did they see themselves not at all related to it since they didn't elect it? and b are there appeals made to the Parliament in England, or are they largely having a back and forth with the monarchy?
2: Well, um the only real relationship Parliament had with the colonies was in the regulation of trade. There was some unhappiness with that, um but you know again, I think most Americans recognize. Somebody has to regulate trade. We need an umpire. So there isn't huge, there's no objection to Parliament's authority there. The question arises starting with the tax issue. That leads to a discussion of the representation issue. And ultimately, by 74, you have many Americans arguing Parliament has no authority over us at all, only the King does. But the petitions, they do go to Parliament. Americans do address their petitions. Do they find any
0: sympathy with Parliament or not really?
2: There there certainly are. Um, William Pitt, for example, was prime minister during the Seven Years' War, a very famous figure. He speaks out strongly against the Stamp Act. Um, there's a group in Parliament who are sometimes called the Friends of America who are proponents of liberty, who argue for the American cause. John Wilkes, a famous figure, is another one of those. And they
0: see the American cause having implications for liberty in England, or they largely yes. see the American cause as just what's just and so they're supporting it
2: there are people who tended to fear that politics in england was corrupt and that this is an example of the corruption and we need to kind of the idea that liberty is very fragile
0: and a power grab in america could mean a power grab yes at
2: home. um that tended to be the thinking i uh, you know especially among english supporters not of the american revolution in the sense of american independence but of American liberties. Um, you know, William Pitt was not going to be a, he was dead by then, but he wouldn't have supported independence. But what he would have supported was give Americans the same rights that we as Englishmen enjoy.
0: Now, last stupid question, and then I'll um, let Mike kind of take over with some questions he might have. But um, an Amer- a landed American of English descent, S- this is a stupid question, but I think it's helpful for listeners to have a sense for um, decides to move back to England as an English citizen.
2: Yes. Um, all the colonies were created by charters that were signed by a king at some point. You were a subject of the British crown, the British empire, so whatever you want you could
0: vote call it. in e- local English elections.
2: If you lived in a place that had representation in parliament and you met the property qualifications, I mean, today, you know, everybody can vote. You're a certain age, you can vote. Um, in this era, in America and England, you had to own assuming you're landed yeah such and such amount of property usually um what's called a freehold um enough so that you're considered to be basically independent you know you don't have to be incredibly wealthy but you can't be poor either
0: and then i thought of one more question Sorry, and then i'll stop um there's lots of non-voting um people in britain the lower class the working class um is there any sense of where popular opinion lies at home over against the American situation?
2: It's hard to really judge popular opinion in this period. Um, one thing you can do is look at Parliament, and by you know, the British never really lose the war militarily. I mean, they they suffered losses, but they could have kept fighting. The problem became after Yorktown in 1781, the will in Parliament turned against the war. Lord North, the Prime Minister, lost his majority. So one can assume that at least the people who are being represented in parliament probably didn't favor continuing this war. But I I think for your average Englishman, it was one of those things that didn't really affect their lives very much. And they were more worried about the price of bread, you know, average everyday sorts of things. Um, You know, I don't think that political debate much concerned your average Englishman.
1: Right. So back in the colonies, then, what's a very short um, reason why I should stay uh, loyal to the crown? And what's a very short reason, the main reason why I should consider a revolution?
2: Well, one of the arguments made for staying loyal to the crown is that God institutes monarchies. Mm -hmm. God anoints kings. And by rebelling against the king, you're rebelling against God it was the hardest bond for Americans to break was the bond with the king. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, the argument really became that if a government, through what Jefferson calls a long train of abuses, demonstrates its willingness to destroy your liberties and your well-being, you have no choice. In fact, you have a duty to rebel against it. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are sort of the two main sides of this
1: and you really can't get away from the god question right no and and so uh you know as a lutheran i was we have a a few lutherans that are uh in the colonies and and established and you have uh you'd have uh mulehausen right
2: yeah um
1: whose son or grant is his son became the first muhlenberg muhlenberg Muhlenberg, muhlenberg yeah um and I believe he was on the Patriot side. And for Lutherans, it's kind of difficult because the long history of very much uh, being loyal to the authorities and this is God's uh, authority. And yet at the same time, that's not exactly fair because uh, Germans are have a history, especially in, in this time and previous, of being really independent. Like no big federal kind of—I <laughs> mean, there's no Germany. No. There's literally no Germany, right? No. And so— uh, it's just an interesting uh, question to ask from the Lutheran uh, side with uh, the theology of the two kingdoms is what what would I have done if I was a good Lutheran in Maryland or Philadelphia in, you know, 1776? <laughs> um, so and, there, and
0: there's really two conditions there, Mike, that both could be up for dispute. A, if you're a good Lutheran, yeah. and B, <laughs> if you're the <laughs> Well, uh,
2: M- Muhlenberg was, you know, his son Frederick serves in the Revolutionary mm-hmm. Army, and there's if, one of the worst historical movies ever made is this, "The Patriot" by Mel Gibson, and there's a there's a cl- there's a <laughs> clergyman character in there, um, you know, and he's giving his sermon and he walks off with his musket. That actually is the story of uh, mm-hmm. Frederick Muhlenberg, who mm-hmm. you know supposedly gives his sermon, then picks up his musket and goes and fights mm-hmm. in the war. But you know, from a Lutheran theological point of view, yeah, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. the The Americans are subjects of Great Britain. So you don't like the government. You think it's doing bad things. That does not give you a right to rebel against it. You may have a right to defend yourself. And maybe after Lexington and Concord, you could make that argument. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, you'd have a very hard time justifying, like, the words of the Declaration of Independence from a Lutheran point of view. Actually, um some of the things written in favor of monarchy in the 17th century more are in line with what Luther had said about mm-hmm. church and state mm-hmm. and obeying government. Um, but, you know, it's uh, most Americans are not Lutheran it is a very, very small percentage of our population. And the Lutherans there were, were primarily today. pietists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where the Wells rules the world. That's right. Well,
0: and I, I probably just missed because I had to step out to have a coffee and fit. So I apologize. Um, I think it's tuberculosis. There's a cure for that now, right? There is. Um, if you were going to succinctly then <clears throat> give, um, and if you if you just did this, then tell me to be quiet, but um, I think it's important to, to look at the justifiability of revolution in, in two realms, um, and I think they connect. Uh, first, the political or legal justification, right? Um, and then secondly, the theological. And I think as we talk about the theological, something that I want to bring in is, I think it is interesting to look at, um, we often read Luther and we think just straight obedience. Um, And a lot of the work I have done um, deals with these questions of church and state and and disobedience. Um, I think the Magdeburg Confession is a very interesting document to look at that takes place after the interims that um, does justify disobedience in that situation Um, and appeals to Romans 13 interestingly as well. Um, but if you look at Dr. Luther's um, warning to his dear German people or the warning to the German people, um, if you look at post torgau Conference Luther, he kind of gets convinced by the, he either gets tired or he gets convinced by the lawyers that there's constitutional grounds at least for defense. Yes. Um, And uh, and maybe it's just he's tired at that point because he, he keeps refusing to give in. But I think there's a case to be made that he does start to understand maybe there are constitutional grounds he doesn't completely understand of sovereignty, autonomy for the prince or territorial autonomy, um, that at least for defense. And so I think you know, Lutherans can come at this at two different points, and I think sometimes Lutherans themselves have maybe imbibed the Shire myth a little too much. Um, William Schreier kind of blames Nazism and the Holocaust on Lutheranism, and he says, trust me, I know about this because I'm a Methodist. Um, <laughs> you know, Because he's a Protestant, I think that's one of the greatest lines ever, because if anybody doesn't understand Protestant theology, it's usually a Methodist. Um, no offense to our Methodist listeners. Email Mike if I have a I, I like Methodists. Methodists are great. But, um, but they're not rooted in um, the Lutheran tradition, I guess. Um, of, you know, Shire perpetuates this thing of like absolute obedience being inherent in Lutheranism and I I don't know that it's there. Um, So if I missed it before, feel free to correct me, but if you were going to give just a a short argument that you're living at that time, okay, and you're trying to make a case, first the political or legal justifiability of it, right? How can you insist you're not a rebel? Um, And then be a theological justification that doesn't have to be even simply rooted in um, lutheranism i mean you have episcopalians um, re- rebelling against um, the head of their church right the crown is defender of the faith um, yes uh, y- how would you succinctly give what they would what you would at that time consider potentially viable justifications
2: well um, in terms of the the political side it's again that uh, it's what jefferson says the long train of abuses If you look at the Declaration of Independence, the the latter part of it, he really makes this case that we have done everything we can. We have protested, we have remonstrated, we have approached the king, and yet all of these things have gone unheard. And now we've been declared out of the king's protection. There are soldiers among us, blood has been shed. We have no choice. And now
0: natural law would compel a defense in the situation. Yeah.
2: um, In a sense, what you can argue is that— Or the law of nature. Yeah. The the king has almost uh, absented himself from being king. And then political authority reverts to the people where it originates. God gives it to the people directly, is what John Locke would have said. And now they have the right to form a new political contract. We have the right to form a new political association. This is exactly what Jefferson says in the Declaration. I mean, really, there's so much um, political philosophy here. Read the Declaration. You have the Cliff Notes version of all of the Enlightenment political philosophy yeah. right there. Um, kind of like hashtag Not My King. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, I and you'll see this again with the French Revolution and the the Spanish Revolution and on and on. It's very similar things, but they also argued they were they, they were they're backward looking. So we're not innovating. We're not the ones changing things. England changed Which things. Which is actually kind of a Lutheran argument. Fair That's Lutheran, what the Augsburg is an yeah. arguing. It's, you know, we are simply trying to defend our rights as Englishmen. Turns out we understand what those are better than Englishmen themselves do. And whether it's us protecting our rights from the king or from other Englishmen who are trying to take our rights from us, we are merely trying to preserve what is ours. And there was a belief that England had become corrupt and that liberty was going to die there, and we need to, in a sense, remove the cancer. Um, you know, religiously, most um, Anglican ministers become loyalists. They they were British, but I think you go to what you're talking about with Luther's constitutional argument. So you know, God establishes kings, but He really establishes governments. So if the government that's established has some sort of allowance for rebellion or the dissolution of the political contract, it might be justifiable in certain cases to do that. Um, if you're infringing upon the
0: recognized rights of a lesser magistrate.
2: Yeah. Or if, um, you know, matter of self-defense is probably your best argument. You know, with Lexington and Concord, you have um, British soldiers ordered to go out into the countryside of Massachusetts, arrest American leaders who surely would have been hanged had they been put on trial, <laughs> and then ultimately, too, to seize the uh, weapons of the Americans. So out of self-defense, Massachusetts men fight, and you see this over and over again. So that's one way to look at it. It's a, it's a self-defense argument. Um, you know, Ultimately, though, too, you could make the case that the, the, the philosophy behind the English Constitution, where you are guaranteed certain rights. If the government violates those rights, it's no longer your government. This is exactly what Locke says. When the government tries to attack your rights, and the only reason it exists is to protect them, it is making war on you, and you have therefore the right to defend yourself.
0: And there are um, precursors of that thought in the Magdeburg Confession as well, that that the government isn't given a um, carte blanche to do whatever it wants, but that, that um, the New Testament, and especially Romans gives the government set jobs it is to fulfill punishing evil and rewarding good, etc. Um, I think it would be really fun to do another episode sometime on Christianity in America, so maybe we can save that. And I think um, having you join us again, if you'd be willing, would be, and sure. not, not simply were the Founding Fathers Christians, but you know to look at um, what was the state of practicing Christianity at the time of the revolution, the great awakenings, um, stuff like that. And and maybe even Dr. Brown might want to jump in with us for that one as well. And all
1: all these churches, when and why and how do they slowly break away from their European ties? Right. So the Anglican church becomes the Episcopalian church and, and what is the ramifications of that? But I think maybe
0: as we, we wind down and I don't want us to go too long and it's my fault that I, I robbed us of some good time. Um, You've mentioned the Enlightenment a few times, and I think this is something that's fascinating to me. And and just to get maybe your take on it, you've mentioned the Enlightenment, and most, if not all, of the thoughts in our founding documents are there in the Enlightenment. Are there any ways in which, though, you would say, are there things about it that are particularly American, or is it largely just the um, putting on paper general Enlightenment ideals, if that makes sense? Well, I mean... Uh, or is the American thing putting it down on paper?
2: I think the American political philosophy is more rooted in the British philosophy, not so much Enlightenment even, but you could argue the philosophy of the Civil War era, what they often call the country ideology of England. Not that the Enlightenment isn't important, and Locke's part of that, Montesquieu's part of that, but, I mean, I don't know if there's anything particularly American about the political philosophy. Um, You know, Jefferson himself, when he was asked, you know, what is the Declaration of Independence, he said it was an expression of the American mind. So what's in the Declaration? It's largely, again, the ideas of of Locke coming out of the um, English Glorious Revolution and and of the Enlightenment. Um, One thing you can say that is unique is that Americans from the beginning, from the time you get the Mayflower over here, are gifted with a very heavy amount of self-government. And when that's not interfered with for years and years and, and, and almost never, it becomes something you just believe is yours by right. And to one day then have it questioned is, is a much bigger deal than it might be somewhere else. Americans were not trained to, to obey governments in the same way that maybe Europeans were. Um, I always think it's kind of ironic. That the simple most ironic fact about the American Revolution is you have the freest people in the world in 1776 in these colonies rebelling against the second freest people in the world (laughs) all with slaves (laughs) Uh, well there's that issue (laughs) um and certainly you know that complicates things immensely of course you know when you're talking about slavery in this and some of the founding fathers saw that um i think most of them saw it they just didn't know what to do about it um george washington freed his slaves. Jefferson did not. He was too broke to do it, actually. Um, But, you know, I think this is where we are today as a country. When we want to look at our founding, we sort of want to tear it apart and look at how hypocritical it all was. Whereas maybe 100 years ago, we wanted to ignore all the hypocritical parts of it. The truth is in the balance somewhere of this. You know, um, it's not a matter of is Jefferson a eloquent spokesman for liberty or a, a, a despicable hypocrite it's not that simple as as is the case with most things and he's, he's both
0: and i think um he's both yes, because he is. He's we both. are you know we're we did an episode saints. mike on, on dr king and i I don't, I don't remember if we read letter from a birmingham jail in that but that's one of the things i appreciate about dr king's letter from a birmingham jail is he's actually saying let's be more american he's appealing to american ideals from our founding yeah but he's, he's doing it in a context of here's ways we've not been very American. And I think that is helpful for understanding uh, Thomas Jefferson of others is that um, there's plenty of phases in history where people have important and valuable ideas and fail to follow through on them perfectly. Early Lutheranism, there's plenty of ecclesi- ecclesiastically in how the church is structured that we could point out um and I'm not equating that with slavery. Um, but uh, but I think sometimes um, we fail to properly distinguish between the men and the ideas also, um, and I think it can be helpful to keep that in mind. Another episode idea, Mike, for us to write down, I think that would be interesting to look at, and Aaron, you just made me think of it by saying the most free are rebelling against the second most free, would be... Um, you have this interesting phase now where Americans have to govern themselves. And you just had people who were fighting against tyrannical government. There's debts to be paid. There's bureaucracy that needs to be established. And I know that doesn't go entirely smoothly. Um, there's gonna be some whiskey fun and, <laughs> and stuff like that. But I think that could be an interesting episode too to look at this rationale of, um, we often look at these, his- these parts of history Then even the early Reformation is this, and we've hit on this a lot with the winging it series with Luther, that they're not necessarily, I don't mean to say they're destructive, but they're in some ways a um, disassembling of a structure. Um, And it's sometimes interesting to look at what comes next, which we're doing with Luther. Like the Reformation settles in, what do they do? Um, So that might be another possibility. I guess just um, finally my last question, if you – For instance, in ethics, we read ordinary men about the Holocaust, and he argues that these were ordinary men that perpetrated it. Um, And one of the things I don't like about that book, but what makes a good book is every time I read it, I have to answer, could I have done that? And my answer, the older I get, gets more like, no. Um, If you think, if you were to put yourself back in time, and let's say, uh, just for sake of argument, I have to give you a, a place and a social standing, um, So you are a landed American, white American, um, coastal region. You kind of waited out, you joined the Loyalists, or you think you would have um, taken up arms?
2: Um, I tend to be conservative by nature. I I think I would have been a Loyalist in the Revolution. Um, The way, uh, you know, the rule of law is important, I think, to me, and... That was one of the great concerns, of course, of of many of the, especially in the South, was if we do this, if we destroy this government, are we also then not destroying the rule of law? And if we do that, what happens? Will there just be chaos now? Um, I suppose that's the fear you get out of the French Revolution, too. Now, it doesn't end in chaos in America for a number of reasons, but there was this fear that this could go too far. Mm-hmm. we have to rein this in if we're going to do this um so just i think given my own conservative nature today i probably would have been a loyalist but who knows the loyalists had a hard time in the american revolution you get tarred and feathered your property would be Which seized really
0: unpleasant yeah.
2: yeah that would be um pretty bad um, almost worse than being called out on twitter uh, slightly
0: <laughs> mike uh what do you think
2: I'm torn because
1: I, by nature, don't like authority and have often, in subtle ways, always rebelled against authority. Like, if a teacher told me... You're talking to, about college? Just in general. Like, if a teacher said, read this book, I'd be like, I'm going to read another book. <laughs> I'm not going to be lazy. I'll still read a book, but I'm going to read the other book because you told me to do that, you know? But uh, I I kind of also don't... Uh, don't much like people who rebel just for the sake of rebellion. So I don't know if I would have been convinced or not. If I was convinced, heck yeah. But I don't know if I would have been convinced or not. What do not. you think I would have done? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you would have, um, with your pen, been all worked up. Um, and But then when the fighting got, you'd, you'd hide in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say,
0: I would have definitely, I think I would have been pro-revolution. And I would have liked to write... Um, but I would say I probably would take, like, a musket, but try to stand in the back. <laughs> you know, like, say Because yeah. I also, I'm a big fan of that dying. See, Or, I, like, worse than dying was the injuries,
1: you know? Right, like so right. yeah. I, I don't, yeah. See, but I'm also, like, when I'm told to do something, I do it, you know? So I would be, like, if I was on the Patriots side, and they're like, we need someone to fight, you know? Like, I'm like, I'll do it.
0: Do you think the— the front line. Speaking of the, the Patriots— did they ever film the opposing sideline or deflate the cannonballs at all to improve their job? <laughs> I'm
2: No, there was spying on both sides, yeah. but you know, I mean, people forget that there's an eight-year long war associated with this. Yeah. It's one of the longest wars in our history. It's it's bloody, it's nasty. I mean, it's not like bloody the level of the Civil War, but you know, this is was hard to sustain and it was a close-run thing. And that all involved
0: on either side, as far as in the army, were convinced of the cause. I mean, there were people pressured into serving.
2: Well, I think in the Continental Army, the people that ended up staying in it, and I mean it, it was small. But the, the retention
0: end. rate was very poor, wasn't it? It was.
2: It was very hard to recruit, and the people who stuck it out were true believers. I think, for the most part, um, you see that in their diaries. They believed in the cause because you were not getting financial gain out of this. Right. You were getting paid in worthless Continental dollars. That, you know, I mean you were from a government that wasn't even monopoly money but we all decided to say it's worth something basically and yeah. even though we decided it wasn't worth anything right so it was a war that led to a lot of real hardship for the people who fought it uh <coughs> and certainly including George Washington himself um you know there's a great story at the end where there's a very near rebellion in the army um in 1783 a group of the officers are discussing essentially whether or not we should um march on philadelphia because um, we haven't been paid and we're we're not going to get paid so washington ultimately goes and addresses them and he's reading these letters from congressmen and trying to convince them and at one moment he pulls out um glasses from his uh pocket and he puts them on and he's looking around and everybody seems to be looking at him like what's wrong with what, what is he doing he says, gentlemen, you must permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only old but blind in the service of my country. And all these men who had fought in the war openly start weeping, thinking, here, look at our leader. Look at what he's given, and what are we doing? We're about to take this and throw it all away. And whether or not this thing called the Newberg Conspiracy was ever really going to come off or not, um, it's a great example of... Um, some Again, some of the sacrifices that people made, and when they remembered that, it made a difference.
0: Well, I don't want us to, to go way over time, but I, I think there's two, three episodes that could come out of this, and I've, I appreciate the even-keel approach here, because I think this is a topic where people try to come down hard on one side or another, and there's a lot of nuance that can be missed, and I think in 2019 America, anything with our founding fathers can be difficult to discuss. So It can. Um, Mike, I'll let you wrap us sure.
1: up. Sure. Uh, what strikes me as we as we were talking about this is is the desire for freedom that we were made for freedom and um, even even uh, biblically there is such a thing as limited government in the sense that the government is getting certain tax but, tasks but can't get into someone's conscience. It's it's just a fact, of, and certainly is not supposed to be doing uh, the work of, the work of faith, the uh, the work of the kingdom of the right hand. And so uh, the question is probably how far can a government go taking away freedoms before its right to rebel and that's very difficult but underneath it all is that we were made for freedom and then finally uh, that's really what we're about here at this podcast that we understand that we're made for freedom we lost that freedom because of sin uh, but Jesus Christ has earned that freedom for us and has given the world back to us and so as we say on this podcast uh, go live free friends because there's nothing left to do but
2: let the bird fly.
1: Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to count. I don't care what the people are thinking, I'm not drunk, I'm just a drinker. I set him up another round, I set him up another round, I set him up another round, one more round, won't get me down.